0: brought to you by Lifetree at life.com And the Becky Nader is home this week taking care of her husband, who just had surgery. So if you think of her, uh, please pray for Becky and her husband as he recovers from surgery. Um, and, and actually, I haven't seen Becky now in three weeks because I was on vacation a week ago, and I'm going through innate Nader withdrawal because she is the Becky Nader. So I'm looking forward to being back uh back together with her in uh, another week, where we'll be um, at the Simply Jesus Gathering here in the Colorado Mountains. Uh, If you haven't yet explored that possibility and the idea of hanging out with about 500 Jesus-loving people from all over the world with some of the most incredible speakers you've ever heard, and time to just relax and also connect with people who have a shared passion for Jesus, uh, we'll put a link to uh, the Simply Jesus Gathering on the page for this podcast, so that even if you want to head out there last minute, you can. So Becky and I'll be together there, and I, I think some of you, some of you on the in the Pigs group, those of you who have said I am all in for Jesus and and have jumped onto the Pigs group page, I think some of you are going to be there, and I can't wait to see you there. So we're looking forward to it. So uh, with Becky out today, I invited. I think, one of the most fascinating, inspiring, and influential people in my life to join me for this conversation today we're going to have about self-doubt. The title of today is Confronting Self-Doubt. His name is Andy Brazelton, and for almost a decade we worked together as a team to create resources and events in the world of youth ministry. And Andy has since moved on to kind of a very strategic role with a, a secular company, and, and but he agreed at the last minute to, uh, to be on the show today. So he is um, he's like a steaming pot full of surprises, including this little factoid about him. He likes to run like 50-mile races in the Colorado mountains. He's a trail runner. He's what you might call an ultra runner. But you would never know it because he doesn't talk about that stuff about himself. He just does stuff like that. So uh, with that buildup, Andy, you can say hi now.
1: Hey, Rick. It's great to hear your lovely squeaky voice again.
0: <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought I had a resonant voice, not a squeaky voice, but I guess maybe it, maybe, maybe that's just my radio voice. So, What
1: the audience doesn't know is over our 10 years of working together, my favorite pastime was actually making fun of you.
0: Uh-huh. And you were very, so- very good at it. You weren't an average make-fun person. You were like Olympic level. Like,
1: yeah, I feel like I really thrived in that position. You
0: did, yeah. If there was an Olympic sport for making fun of people, you would definitely have been a qualifier.
1: Thank you. I oh, appreciate that. I,
0: I, took the, I took the edge off of that at the end. So you did. So this month we are focusing on doubt, and of course we have doubts about God, and we're, we have talked about some of those doubts about God. Um, but tied to our doubts about God are sometimes debilitating doubts about ourselves. And Andy and I have uh, been friends for a long time, and we know something about each other's doubts (laughs) because of that. And I thought it would be fascinating to talk to Andy today, a person who has a fascinating and surprising story um, and a fascinating and surprising response to that story. Uh, I thought it would be fascinating to talk to him in depth about the the role of self doubt, and self doubt is something that uh, sort of grows like a weed as you age and mature into an adulthood. Into adulthood, it it starts out small when you're a kid, and it just keeps building as you're an adult. And we end up doing so many things to try to manage the self doubt that we have in our life as we grow older. And Andy, I know that. For you, you you lost your father early in your life, at kind of a a pivotal moment in your life, in your transition from when you were a, a boy to becoming a young man. And I'm wondering, first of all, when you think about how that foundational trauma impacted your life, how did it impact the doubts you had about God and the doubts you had about yourself even up until today?
1: Rick, it's a fantastic question. And as I was, I had very little time to review your questions. <laughs> um,
0: you That's know, the way I like it, Andy. The-
1: right. So I appreciate the preparation on this. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. It- it's a good question. And I-, I wanted to start by saying, you know, even in reviewing your questions, I had doubt that I was the right person to respond to them.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> y- you know, it, it was almost painful as I was thinking, how can I add value to someone that's listening to this as I share my story and I share my struggle and my journeys with doubt and anxiety and fear and self-deprecation and uh, negative self-talk? And these things that, that exist in my soul, um, how can I create a picture of hope and, and a path to health um, in light of the way that Rick is framing up these questions? And, I, and honestly, I, I don't know how to do it. So the only thing I do know how to do is go step-by-step. Step. Yeah. I can live moment-by-moment. Moment, we,
0: so. we we got to stop right there, though, because I think you touched into right off the bat the, the central issue, which is, so even in my questions, which are asking something of you, and they they go in and, and you say, and I say, am I up to this? Can I do this? Can I make good impact in this? And there's this voice that's, that's full of doubt about that especially if you haven't had much time to prepare which is like all of life how much of life do we really have that much time to prepare for the things just like what we're doing right now access that voice in us so anyway i think that i mean you led off with exactly the issue that is universal for all of us so so in light of that take a stab at that uh, talk talk a little bit about the impact of losing your father at an early age has had on your life relative to your doubts about God and about yourself?
1: Yeah, so the the faith journey is probably a lot like other, you know, folks that lost a parent at a young age. At age 10, my dad died of a heart attack, um, left with a a wonderful, beautiful single mother who was there to be the sole provider. Um, You know, fast track then almost 25 years later, and I'm married for 15 years and I have two kids, but as I've now struggled through faith, as I've been in personal recovery for, for hurts and hang-ups, um, I've realized how much losing my father at a young age was really a, a pivotal marker in uh, part of the faith journey. And it, it, it has impacted my doubt because I didn't have a, a, an actual structured model in my household on what I was supposed to be doing. And so, Rick, you brought up a great point. Um, 90% of my life, when I'm in doubt, I'm also likely in fear. Mm. But what I've realized in, in maybe the last 24 months is I'm most afraid when I'm least prepared. Mm. And if I can do the hard work of preparation, I can move past my fear and release my doubt. In the instance of losing my father, there was no preparation. So I've, I've, I've lived a, as, a, as a young male to now an adult, um, I've lived full of doubt, because there was no roadmap there. There was no guidebook. There was no guiding star telling me how to do this on a daily basis. So, Andy, included, I, yeah.
0: I was going to say, I, I experienced you, I've experienced you um, throughout our whole relationship, on the surface at least, as one of the most confident, bold people I've ever met. And I'm wondering, if you track back to that 10-year-old kid, would that have described him as well?
1: It, it definitely would not have, Rick. I was not confident and bold. I was hiding from my true emotion. And so I had a shell around me in my emotion and the reality of who I was as a real deep person. Um, I would say up until the last 24 months when I decided I was going to let that guard down and actually let Jesus invade my life. But I was emotionless, and therefore— my doubt wouldn't necessarily manifest itself outwardly. You wouldn't be able to tell that I was lacking confidence, even though I had no confidence deep down inside.
0: Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that the way that I introduced you is that together, you and I together for a decade, were producing uh, events and resources for youth ministry. And before that, we were both doing that in in other places before we merged together uh, here at GROUP. And so for all of this, basically your whole adult life, you were helping to create resources for others to draw them near to Jesus and you just said it's only in the last 24 months that i've really opened myself in a in a vulnerable way to him and i think uh, for some people listening that that could be like what did i just hear but i think that is such a common story for so many of us walking this path that that this kind of vulnerability that you're talking about that is scary and we're usually forced into it, we don't usually choose it, we're usually forced into that level of vulnerability, um, that a lot of us can live our whole lives without ever coming to that place. And I, I think that the interesting twist about this story of of losing your father is that you discovered as a young man that you had sort of inherited some of your dad's genetic predisposition to high blood pressure and heart disease, which is what ended his life early, and even though you you eat well and you exercise like a madman, it, you're barely keeping the cap on that on on that high blood pressure because you you have this genetic predisposition to it. So not only did your dad pass away, but you were left with something that you saw firsthand what did to your family. And so you have this sense inside, I know, of doubt about whether you're going to be able to grow old with your wife and your kids, how has that doubt in a way helped you? And how has it hindered you in your life to this point?
1: Yeah. I mean, as I, as I think about the fear and the doubt that strikes me when I think about my own physical health and my genetic makeup, um, it's overwhelming. I almost can't think about it because i become tearful. Uh, You know, we've had this conversation before, Rick, you know, my kids are my world. My wife was my high school sweetheart. That's, that's who I am. That's, that's my composition as a human is my family. And so to think about having a genetic makeup that would hinder me from living a long life with them is overwhelming. But to move through doubt, I have to, I have to move forward. So several years ago, I made a choice to be on a statin, which was a choice. And what I've realized in my life is I, – I, and you guys – the can disagree with this, I don't actually think I can make a wrong choice. So in this instance, I made a choice prayerfully to go on a statin to reduce my risk of heart disease. As I move forward, as I move out of doubt, as I move into choice, I then open myself up to the freedom of faith. Every little micro-choice is really just a faith gesture, mm. and those faith gestures are rewarded because i faithfully sought, you know, Jesus— as cheesy as that sounds, excuse me, um, to help me make the right decision. And yeah. I don't think I can make a wrong decision.
0: But, and along the way, prior to that decision, you, uh, you were probably the most determined person I ever met relative to your nutrition and your exercise. So when I introduced you as an ultra runner and you run 50-mile races in the Colorado mountains, you were driven to, to do this. So can you talk a little bit about what, what drove you? What was going on that motivated you to respond to this great doubt in your life that way?
1: Yeah, 14 years ago, my wife, I was eating a slice of pizza and probably drinking a Mountain Dew, and my wife, Julie, she's wonderful. She said, you're going to die. We're never going to be able to have kids because you're going to be dead. Um, I was probably 230 pounds at that point, which is, for me, probably a good 40 pounds overweight um, and definitely in high-risk heart zone, and she presented me with a choice. She said— you know, if you want to have kids, be healthy. If you don't want to have a kid, if you don't want to have children, you're going to die and, you know, we'll all move on in life. And obviously that was a non-starter. Uh, <laughs> so I made the choice at that point to to be healthy. Um, and it was hard. It was really hard because I had to, to work through bad habits. I had to work through dysfunction in my life um, to move past that. But But, yeah, it was ultimately just a choice I made.
0: So – and at the height of that determined choice – I, um, I just remember uh, listening to your story, and I couldn't imagine taking better care of what I ate or taking better care of or more extreme ability to participate in fitness and, and uh, uh, athletic challenges, and yet that still wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to lower your numbers enough that you weren't still in danger. What did that feel like when that realization set in for you?
1: Yeah, it's extremely scary. You know, I'm sure everybody gets this, but, you know, if I have, like, a heartburn or something, you know, a normal person thinking, oh, it's just heartburn, I ate too much crummy food. I have to think about it to a more extreme sense of, is there something going on? Is there, is there a signal that I need to be listening to right now within my body that's telling me uh, I'm moving in a bad direction with my heart, uh, with my cholesterol, with whatever that might be? Yeah, so it, it was extremely scary. But, you know, you're making a parallel to ultra running. Um, In fitness, in life, what ultra running has taught me is just one foot in front of the other. What you can't do in ultra running is you can't stop. You can't sit down. You can't be idle. But what you can do is you can keep moving, whether you're moving for eight hours or whether you're moving for 20 hours. You never stop putting one foot in front of the other. And it becomes less of a physical limitation, and it becomes more of of a mental, uh, mental tenacity and mental grit to just keep moving. And if you can do that in life, I think you can move through a lot of these fears because I'm, I'm constantly agile and I'm never static. I, when I'm most static is when I'm most afraid and most in doubt about my health, about my career, about my family, about my faith, about my finances, about life. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that, that you bring that up because self-doubt can feel like an infection or like a cancer growing. And, and if you stop— and chew on self-doubt, that's what really fertilizes it, and you're talking about taking one step in front of the other into your self-doubt, into the thing that scares you, so that you just keep moving, and I think that's, that's profound um, context for what it means to face the doubts that we have about ourselves. What do we do? Do we argue ourselves into no doubt, or do we just start moving? I remember uh, one of the things that profoundly impacted me um, early on in my journey with Jesus was something that George MacDonald said, the key to the Christian life is doing the next thing we know to do, and he's really saying the same thing you are. Taking the next step, whatever that is, helps us to walk through the fog of doubt in our lives. And I know, I've, I've already kind of set up how, what a kind of an extremely confident, capable person you have been your whole adult life in your career and in your life in other ways. Um, and so on the outside, um, that's what p- most people experience. And I, I know it's easy to camouflage our doubt with success, where we sort of uh, keep doubt at bay by continuously telling ourselves the story of our success. So we kind of drive back the the ghost of doubt in our lives by just pursuing success after success. So I'm just wondering, in the midst of success uh, that you've had as an adult, in what ways have you wrestled with doubt underneath the surface of that? And maybe in what way has that pursuit of success been a camouflage, and in what way has it been simply an outgrowth of you walking into doubt? I hope that makes sense, but that may be the longest question I've ever asked.
1: No, it definitely was the longest question I've ever asked. <laughs> and it actually makes very little sense. Excellent. I'm just kidding. Um, I think honestly, Rick, and, and you know me well enough to know this is a very sincere, not self-deprecating comment. You may see me as the most confident person in the room, but I likely feel like I'm the most ineffective, insufficient person in the room. Right? I, I feel like at my core... I don't feel adequate, and so I feel, for the most part, like I don't belong.
0: And is the only time that you feel adequate, is, is the only time that feeling is in you is when you feel sort of on top of it in your own strength? Are there other times where that sense of deep inadequacy, you're free of it? And, and if so, what's happening when you're free of it?
1: It's a great question. Um, I, I don't ever not sense it in in candidly, and you know this well about me as well, Rick you would never I would never feel confident with a microphone in front of four, thousand people in an auditorium. I was always the one to one guy behind the scenes in the roles that I've been in though as a leader of people and within organizations, I'm put in the position to have to communicate strategy, to have to communicate next steps, to have to communicate difficult things to, to numbers of people. Um, it's in those moments where I feel the most inadequate because I don't feel strong as a verbal communicator. I don't enjoy it. Um, I enjoy one-to-one dialogue. In, in in my career that I'm in today, as a, I'm, I'm in consulting now, um, there's often times where I'm communicating to large numbers of people, much more senior than I am, that could you know have me removed from a project if they wanted to, if I said something some, something wrong or something you know that they didn't like. Um, talk about fear. Talk about feeling like you're you're over your ski tips in every single meeting that you're in. In, in there's patterns that I've learned. There are um, there's things that I've adapted to to become more comfortable in those scenarios. Um, right now I'm I'm traveling this week, so I'm I'm in a high rise in San Francisco. But this morning at 5 a.m. Um, As I rolled out of bed, I I hit the ground, and I I prayed a very simple prayer. I said, Lord, please turn my anxiety into faith. Please turn my fear into strength. And it's it's simple words like that, simple prayers that I leverage um, to move past the negative self-talk and into a feeling of empowerment through the Holy Spirit, knowing that Jesus is going to watch out for me today, and I'm not trying to get through the day. I, I, I typically pray in time chunks. I pray, Lord, please get me through the next three hours. You know what I have in front of me. Lord, please get me through you know, this afternoon meeting where this is going to be a really challenging conversation. Um, I pray a lot, Rick. Uh, it, it's, it's a pattern that I've developed, and it it's, takes the fear and it takes the inadequacy, and it puts it on Jesus. Jesus, you freaking figure it out. because I can't.
0: Yeah, what I love about what you described, too, is those are certain kinds of prayers you're talking about. They're they're throughout the day because they're tied to your desperate reality, and for me, uh, what means the most to me are desperate prayers. Not the kind of desperate prayers like uh, you're facing death and you never pray to God, but you're going to pray now because you're facing death. That's not what I mean by desperate prayers. I mean prayers that recognize our utter dependence on Jesus, that have an honest calculation about what we bring to the table, and we recognize, I don't have enough, I'm not bringing enough to the table, therefore I desperately need you, Jesus. I think it's in those moments where we actually see ourselves and Him most clearly, because when we are uh, consumed by our own arrogance, our own posing, our own hiding from the reality, we're not really admitting the truth about ourselves, and we're not embracing the truth about Jesus in those moments. And I I think that kind of rhythm of desperate prayer throughout the day that's spoken kind of under your breath, um, it's a response really to when we feel the anxiety rising in ourselves, or the fear rising in ourselves, instead of trying to manage the anxiety or fear, we attach ourselves, we, and the way we do that is we pray. We we admit where we are, and we ask for uh, a, a kind of a dependent attachment with Jesus, so that uh, the way you describe that is to help me get through the day, or to get get through the next three hours. So I, I mentioned here that one of the ways that I think that we respond to doubt is that we hide, because doubt is scary, and we don't want to we don't want to show that kind of vulnerability on, on the surface. In the face of our doubts, and I know that you, you mentioned in the last twenty-four months, you've had this experience of opening yourself in a much more vulnerable way to Jesus. So, what have you been learning about the role of hiding in your life, and what have you been learning about the antidote to it?
1: Yeah, and this is maybe overly vulnerable, um, but but heck, what what are you going (laughs) to do? You know, so yeah, I, I lived. I've been a Christian since age 12, so I've lived the majority of my, my adult life loving Jesus or for what I thought, but in a very insulated and incubated way. Um, in November of 2016, because of the impetus of fear, doubt, and anxiety in my life, and because of the negative ways—and I'll list them—that um, I was dealing with doubt and fear, um, you know, alcohol, pornography, money Spending money, anger, food, right? What do you do to to self cope with the emotion that you feel and you don't know what the heck to do about it, right? Those mm-hmm. are some unhealthy outlets, and I was using them, right? In November of 2016, I said, Ah, those, that life, I, I've seen too many people around me be hidden, and when their sin comes to light, I've seen everything around them be destroyed, and it's completely destructive.
0: It's like a nuclear bomb. It just takes out everything standing.
1: Yeah, and Rick, you know the situations I'm talking about. Yeah. They were visceral and raw for us, um, and I did a lot of soul-searching in those moments. And And I finally—I was sitting in church on a Sunday morning, and I saw a, an ad for Celebrate Recovery, and it was starting that next week. I had to tell my wife I'm going to go to a 12-week Bible study on Soul— Celebrate recovery at my church, and here's the, the the hurts and hangups that I'm dealing with. On, you know, she's shocked, she's frustrated, she's sad, she's mad, she's happy, you know, all those things in that same emotional time frame. Um, and, and so I showed up to celebrate recovery that next week, thinking it was a twelve week Bible study, not knowing that I was now in for the next eighteen stinking months of my life <laughs> to go through a twelve step study, not a twelve week study. Um, but but honestly, Rick, you know, as a as an upfront Model Christian man, I was a hidden, isolated, broken person dealing with my uh, inadequacies in super unhealthy ways. When I made the decision to step into the light, to be an accountable person, to acknowledge my sin by name, not by blurred lines, um, by joining Celebrate Recovery, everything changed. And I have clarity now. The way I deal with anxiety and fear is very different than how I dealt with it 24 months ago and i've been sober from my issues for over uh at this point 18 months. um and i'm very proud to say that.
0: thank you for sharing all that andy it's it would be easy yeah, to i can't it,
1: believe i just did yeah.
0: it would be it it would be so easy to be vague and what i just love that uh and this is this is a profound uh, uh i i wouldn't say it's a difference in you i think you found an extra gear in the last 24 months because You are already one of the most impactful people I'd ever known before this happened. And since this happened, though, you have found another gear in your life, and and what you just did is part of that other gear, where the same determination to keep stepping forward one foot in front of the other into the dark is what you just did. Because the truth is, I always tell my kids this, who think that our family is the most messed up family on the cul-de-sac or in the neighborhood— And I'm like, well, kids, you just don't see past the facade of everyone else that's in this neighborhood. We are just more out there with our messy, brokenness. But um, a lot of the people you're around, they protect that stuff behind a thick wall. And if you knew the truth about what was going on with them, you'd be shocked. You'd you'd say that can't be the same person. I can't believe that that's happening. But this idea that you would live in the light, what is true in the dark, you know, Jesus over and over again. Uh, in so many different ways, like we talked about uh, when I, I had Tom Melton on the, on the, uh, on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and he, we talked about uh, dragging stuff into the light and how, that, how important that is to everything that Jesus talks about. And uh, my experience also of you as you made this transition into, the, into dragging all of this stuff into the light was a, a palpable sense of intimacy and receptivity to Jesus, that was in another gear than I had experienced you before. And why do you think that was?
1: Well, the the truth is there's too much on the line, right? And and I believe deep down in my soul that men struggle with anxiety, fear, and doubt, but they don't have an outlet to discuss it because they're afraid. Um, and, And so in acknowledging how much I had to lose, it was the only choice I really had. So today, I've talked to my sponsor via text likely a dozen times. Mm. I've talked to my accountability partner probably eight times via text, today alone, right? They know how I'm feeling and how I'm doing, where I need prayer in near real time. Mm. And it's, it's that circle, it's that, that freedom in truth about myself, my sin, my inadequacies, that I can release to these two individuals, that has freed me up to keep moving. Because now it's Jesus' problem. I'm holding it all out there. Jesus is going to fix it or he's not. And gosh, I know that sounds cliche, but I've just hit a point where it's the only thing I have, and I believe that down to my core.
0: Yeah, and you know, I love what you just said. And relative to self-doubt, this is such a profound tipping point here relative to our self-doubt, whose problem is it? And most of us default to, this is my problem. My self-doubt is my problem. My first step is to make sure no one else sees it. My second step is to internally deal with it on my own. And I definitely don't want to invite anyone else into my self-doubt unless I I can't contain it any longer and I and it just explodes out of me. And what you're saying is, whose problem is this? What the shift you're talking about is I'm handing this to Jesus. It's his problem to deal with. And that that is such a freeing thing to to be able to admit it, to be in the light with it, and then to hand it to him and say, This this is yours, not mine to carry. it, it that is the very definition of faith, I think in our own messy, broken way, it's the faith that he's capable of carrying what we can't. And that's where we start to see Jesus as he really is, and that's where we actually need him to come through for us. And that's when our relationship with him really gets alive and deep and gritty and substantive. Until then, for me, I think it's because I went through a similar transition as you, only Further back in my history, the the difference between those two forms of life are just the level of awareness and engagement in life that I have since I started to depend on Jesus more and live in the light more. It's just a much more alive way to live than the kind of internal, protective, walled-up way that a lot of us typically live. So it does require vulnerability, but it was, but that very vulnerability is the way we were wired to live with Jesus. So the fact that you're texting your sponsor and your and your accountability partner and um, throughout the day is, I think, a practice of vulnerability. It's saying, in micro bursts, I'm going to live in the light uh, relative to my self doubts. So it doesn't eradicate self doubt. I I think in the end because we are broken people who are always going to live with some level of self-doubt. It's not That's so right. much that we excise self-doubt from our lives, it's where we take it. When Instead of dealing with it internally, we're dealing with it externally and handing it over to Him. So I, I love the, the kind of transfer that you talked about there. So what we're going to do—first, uh, I, uh, I, I want to give you a chance to say anything— at the end here that to kind of sum up what your story is about, Uh, then uh, Andy and I are going to put a period on our conversation here, and then I'm going to pick up and make a connection here to a a story about Peter um, after this. So Andy, anything that is left on the table for you that you'd like to to say to kind of sum up all of this for you?
1: Yeah, and again, I'm not a communicator. I don't. I, I was never planning on sharing any of this in a public forum. So I, I'm not a polished, slick. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't. I don't do words well. Um, with that said, we're all broken, and we're all hurting. The second you're willing to acknowledge it and name it, you'd be you, you'll 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 be surprised how much freedom there is. Once you name it and acknowledge it. The next step is to seek health. Um, in my case, I chose to go to Celebrate Recovery, um, which opened up then uh, greater outlets for me to seek accountability and sponsorship in practical ways that I could deal with my hurts and hangups, right? But all of this had to do with, at my core, feeling insignificant, um, feeling afraid, and, and, and ultimately riddled with doubt and fear, right? Um, in that journey, though, I've grown, I've learned, I've, but, but I, Rick, I do feel more alive. I do feel more connected to the world, to Jesus, to those around me, because of this acknowledgement of, you know, my inadequacies, but then Jesus has given me peace. I, I, there's an element of humility here as well. Jesus acknowledges your humility. If you come truly open, saying, I'm broken, and I don't know how to get through the next you know, 25 minutes, that's a humble moment, and that's honored. It's rewarded. It's blessed uh, because you're broken, and, and that's all he's looking for. And, and I've been able to do that because I truly feel that. There's just a lot of freedom in, in moving forward and taking the step to be healthy. If you're hiding, um, I'm sorry because I was for, you know, 30 years, and I know what you're feeling, and I would encourage you to keep moving forward to, to be healthy and step into the light.
0: I love that, and I love you, Andy. And uh, you know, the uh, I think the thing that's happening here too is that when we're in community with others who are honest in the way that you're describing, and are dependent on Jesus in the way you're describing, it gives courage to one another. It gives courage just to know that others. Have, ha- have followed the secret path that we all think we're the only ones on, it gives courage to know that there's many, many others on that path. Um, and, and this is the kind of community that Jesus intended, the, a community that lives in the light, and it's powerful and necessary for us to face the challenges and fill the role in the kingdom that we have. So I, I really appreciate you coming on. Maybe we'll uh, talk again. Uh, tell me the yeah. next time you're in San Francisco, and we'll make sure we talk then.
1: <laughs> oh, good time! Hey, man, I love you. It's great to talk to you. All right.
0: Bye, Andy. All
1: right, buddy. Have a good one, guys. Bye-bye.
0: All right. I I love that conversation with Andy, and I hope that that was an encouragement to you, and maybe you could find yourself in his his story as well. I want to transition here at the end of the podcast to Peter, the story of Peter. Peter fascinates me for a variety of reasons— I think one of them is that i feel like he's been given a short-sighted and inaccurate kind of persona that uh, only scratches the surface i have such respect for peter and for the place that he came from and the challenges that he faced and i just want to walk through his story a little bit and then end up in john chapter 21 to talk a little bit about self-doubt so peter in the days of jesus there were very few people who were not slaves, and the people that were not slaves had somehow figured out, like Peter did, how to scrape out a entrepreneurial living for themselves. He built and created a thriving fishing business with brother and two friends, and they were successful at it, and they worked their tails off at it. But it was such an extraordinary thing at that time to be a person like Peter, who had founded and built and maintained your own small business. And he did it because he was a very capable man and a very determined man, a very gritty man. He was brash, he was bold, he was confident. Peter was the first to do so many things. He was the first to get out of the boat and walk on the water when Jesus invited all of the disciples to join him. Only Peter got over the side of the boat. And what I mean by the Church has given him a short shrift in his persona— is we think oh yeah peter you know he he sank in the water and we often forget actually what would you or i respond how would we respond if we were asked by jesus to get out of a boat in the middle of a storm in the middle of the night and walk on the water to him the idea that any of us would get over the side of the boat to me is is ludicrous and yet peter does it because he is determined and he is committed to jesus He's also the first to name Jesus the Messiah. He's the first to go all in with Jesus. He said to Jesus, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, when all of the rest of the people who have been following Jesus leave him in John 6, because he tells tells them to eat his body and drink his blood, and Jesus asks his disciples, are you going to go too? Peter's the one who speaks up and says, where else would we go, Jesus? Only you have words of life and truth. Think about what kind of makeup this man has. Who says things like that in moments like that. He's actually also the only one who physically defended Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was about to be arrested. He pulls a sword and tries to defend Jesus. He tries to make good on the promise he'd made Jesus over and over again, which was that he would defend him if it came down to it. He tries to make good on it, and Jesus stops him and heals the ear of the man that he had, that he had sliced in his attempt to defend him. And then, of course, famously, um, everything changes, and as Jesus predicts, uh, Peter denies him, betrays him three times, once to a little girl. This man, this larger-than-life man, this confident man, really, in the end, is full of self-doubt, and it's all exposed through these three betrayals. This, this, at his core, he is just what Andy described at his core and what I describe at my core— just racked with brokenness and self-doubt, and it's all exposed in these three denials of Jesus. And then from that point to after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Peter's absent. He goes into hiding. My guess is that Peter is contemplating suicide during these days uh, where he's absent from the scene, and he's never absent from the scene, and all of a sudden Peter doesn't show up. What is happening to him? For a man who sees himself the way Peter did, to have denied Jesus so publicly the way he did, it's a destruction of your identity. It's a, t- it's a crumbling of everything you've built around who you say that you are. And for the first time, his self-doubt and, his, and his, even his cowardice and his fear is well on display for everybody. And how can he live with himself now, now that he's been outed in this way? And so he goes underground. And I believe he contemplated suicide in this moment, because this was maybe the worst thing a man like Peter could do, is to deny his own, the truth of his own identity. And so after the resurrection, we have these scenes of Peter's close encounters with Jesus, where he runs to the tomb when he hears that Jesus is not there, and he's the first to go into the cave. John runs faster, but Peter tails behind him and actually enters the cave because he's desperate to see if it's true that Jesus is not there. And so they talk with the angels in the cave, and who are amused that they think that Jesus still would be there. The, uh, the angels tell him, well, this is what he said was going to happen. He's, he's going to rise from the dead. But uh, uh, he has these little brief encounters with Jesus, but it's not until John 21 where Jesus appeals, appears to these seven disciples who decide to go out fishing because they don't know what else to do. So they decide to go out fishing one night, and they fish all night and catch nothing, which is remarkably similar to the very event that happened when Jesus first called Peter on the shores of the Lake Genesaret, where they fished all night and caught nothing, and Jesus told them to throw their net over the side of their boat, and they caught a huge haul of fish. The same thing happens here at the end, uh, just before Jesus ascends to the Father, and uh, the, the disciples fish all night, catch nothing. They see a guy on the beach. He tells them to throw their net over the side, and they catch a huge haul of fish. And John, the 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 the, the smart one on the boat, says, I, "I think I've seen this before." And he and he says that I think that's Jesus on the shore. And Peter leaps out of the boat and thrashes his way to the shore to be with Jesus. And then we have this scene that we've all heard so many times in the church, where. Uh, Jesus sort of pulls Peter aside a little bit and uh, and has, has a little walk with him, and he asks him some pointed questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter goes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And then Jesus repeats the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter says, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus says. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I love this scene because Peter's self-doubt has been outed. He's contemplated probably terrible things, he meets Jesus again, and he can't help himself. He loves Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Like a surgeon, he opens him up one more time and exposes the lie that is at the core of Peter, the lie that was exposed before in his betrayal. He exposes this in Peter and says, I know what's there, Peter. And three times I'm asking you to assert your, your love for me, to the point that it hurts that I'm asking you, because our way through self-doubt is the little steps that Jesus sort of pointed Peter toward. Three times he asked him to take a little step out out of his self-doubt, through the fog of his self-doubt, toward him. He's essentially saying what Andy said in in my uh, conversation with him, to, to put one foot in front of the other toward Jesus and move through your own fears, your own anxieties, your own realizations of your lack of ability and your, and your own weakness. Move through that fog toward him. And what we do when we're moving through the fog toward him is we're reasserting our love for him at every step. Jesus, I do love you. Do you really? Do you really love me? Yes, take another step. I love you. But do you really love me? Yes, Jesus, take another step. I love you, and I'm attached to you, and I'm not going anywhere. And that thing that Peter said way back in John 6, Jesus, where else would I go? He lives out, all the way to uh, crucified upside down on a cross. So this journey of confronting and outing our our self-doubt, and then moving toward Jesus in the midst of it, is our journey toward freedom. And you heard Andy... Uh, describe what that feels like. Freedom feels alive. It feels more like what we were created to be. Um, It feels more like what life was created to be, when we are living in the light and dependent on Jesus, and not um, not managing our self-doubt, but giving it to him as we walk one foot in front of the other. So for those of you who resonate with all this and are in this place right now, I just want to encourage you. If you're in the fog of self-doubt, start putting one foot in front of the other, walk toward Jesus, and tell him you love him, and let him meet you there in the fog. So this has been Paying Attention to Jesus, Season 2, Episode 27. And uh, that's, that's a lot of episodes, gang. We're so grateful for the journey That you have been on with us, and if this is your first time listening, I encourage you to go back and listen to two previous podcasts to get a kind of a sense of the journey that we're on here. And if you're interested in being a part of a private Facebook page called The Pigs, and if you don't know what that means, uh, pick up a copy of Jesus Centered Life, there's a chapter in it called Be the Pig, and it's all about uh, how pigs go all in for the meal while chickens just offer up an egg for the meal. They, they go partially in, but a pig goes all in for the meal. So we've adopted that as the name of our private Facebook page. Um, it's a community of people who are broken and messy, just as Andy and I are, but who love Jesus and are all in with Him and want to live in community with each other as we walk through the fog toward Him. So we'll put a link there on the page as well for you to ask to be invited into that group. And you can find out more information about everything we said today, as I've mentioned, and in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com page. You can find our podcast section, and you're looking for Season 2, Episode 27. Again, it's paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. We'll talk to you next time when the Becky Nader will join us again. Thanks.